So I'd like to talk just a little bit. I've been doing a little rundown <clears throat> on Christmas carols, and this is, uh, it might be the oldest hymn that's still sung in the churches today, because it was written by a man named Arulius Clemens Prudentius, and he was born in Spain in 348 AD. Okay, that's when this man lived. 35 years prior to his birth, Christianity had been granted full toleration under the Edict of Milan. You remember Constantine? With Constantine's conversion, Christianity became the favored religion of the empire, and so persecution of Christians ceased at that time. It was a welcome relief in answer to their prayer because they were beleaguered all through uh, the centuries leading up to that. Prudentius was a judge, and he rose in ranks of the state until he actually achieved a place in the court offices of the Christian emperor, and that was around 379, 395 A.D. And at the pinnacle of prestige and power in the secular world of politics and court, at 57 years old, Prudentius, he left. He left it all. He turned a blind eye and a cold shoulder to it, considering it a waste of his time. And he spent the last decade of his life writing hymns. Some would say they're the most beautiful hymns written of that age. That's where the song that we sang this morning came from. He wrote one composition that was made up of 12 long poems, a collection of 12 hymns for the hours of the daily offices followed in prayer disciplines in the monasteries at the time. You notice all these carols that we sing are actually poetry that has been written and then they're put to music. Hymnologist Albert Bailey, who calls Prudentius the earliest Christian writer who was a real poet, states that this is a fighting song. Now, this is important for us to understand. We sing it at Christmas time, but it's a fighting song because during the fourth century, what had become Orthodox theology was fighting for its life against attacks by heretical perspectives on the church. You remember, this is the time of the great church councils that met to put down heresies that were developing. One of the most prominent heresies at the time was propagated by one Arius in 250-336 AD, whose most controversial position, and the one relevant to our hymn today, was that God the Father and the Son did not coexist through eternity. This heresy states that before his incarnation, Jesus Christ was created by God, and therefore Jesus did not exist through all time. Jesus was a creature or a created being that, though divine, was not equal to the Father. That's what this song was written to fight against. That heresy is known as Arianism, and it consisted of his teaching that the Son of God was not co-equal and co-substantial with his Father, but was rather a created being subordinate to the Father. You know, I don't think we think about that when we sing this song, if we even sing this song, because I'm sure a lot of churches aren't singing songs of any deep value of theological content. Many are singing little Christmas ditties, and I, I, I just wish I was a fly on the wall of many quote-unquote evangelical churches during this season to see what they're singing. 
I'm sure I'd be shocked, as you would. Eris' belief was condemned by the first ecumenical council in Nicaea of 325. The writer's hymns is obviously a fighting song, and you see it in the very first stanza, which should be up there now. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began, he is Alpha and Omega, he is the source, the ending he, of things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see evermore and evermore. It was in the 19th century that John Neal added the little refrain, evermore and evermore, kind of driving a stake of affirmation that the eternal existence of the triune God, who has been, who is, and who will forever be, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. These things that we sing are important. We get them into our minds, we memorize them, or because we sing them so often, they become part of us. We need to make sure that what we're singing is true. True to the scriptures, true to God's word. And I can guarantee you at Beacon of Hope, we work hard at doing just that. And I'm grateful for the worship that we have here at Beacon of Hope. The words were paired with a medieval plain chant. You would have noticed that. Did you feel like, you Catholics, did you feel like you're back at Mass a little bit? Right? Because that was developed during those days when the Catholic Church was getting its start. Sadly, that Catholic Church that was getting its start and really getting established in 325 or so, when Constantine came in, it, it calcified with some bad doctrine. And so it is what it is today. And that's very, very sad. But they used to chant these. Divine uh, mystery was a chant, or the plain chant that it was put to. Plain song was the exclusive form of Christian church music until the ninth century, and the introduction of harmonization. And the simple chants of plain song have a non-metric rhythm. You notice it was a little bit unique, and they did a marvelous job carrying the melody. Their rhythms are generally freer than the metered rhythm of later Western music, and they are sung a cappella, or with one note. <laughs> okay, this song is often included in Advent carols because of the wonderful poetry extolling the love of the Father to the Son before the foundation of the world. But that love has been extended to the entire world through the Son, the long-awaited Messiah. And that's why I chose that hymn to talk about this morning and my topic on the love of the Father. That's what Christmas is all about. It's a celebration that marks the birth of God's Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know, having celebrated this now for almost a half a century in Christ, I myself am challenged, I think, it just is so common. It's so known to me. Are the things that I'm saying on Sunday morning, are they resonating with people at all? Or is it just like typical, this is what you hear on Sunday morning? I, I don't know. I pray it's not. I pray that these are gripping you. Every single Advent sermon that I've made has been fresh and new to me. And it's really helped me to anticipate the celebration of Christmas. And I hope it's so for you. 
Because that love has been extended. It's, it's the celebration that marks the birth of God, the Savior, Jesus Christ. So with that, let's pray, and that's my introduction to the sermon, so hang on. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the words of such poets that you inspired, Lord. Not that those words are canon, not that they're biblical truth, but they reflect the biblical themes that are in Scripture. And so, therefore, we sing them with great joy because they remind us of your truth. And in a world that just has turned its back on truth, in a post-Christian world where truth has turned into whatever anybody thinks it is in their own experience, Father, we ask for your forgiveness for being caught up in such a world. And we pray that we will be able to speak against it even as this fighting hymn spoke against the heirs of its day. But Father, let us do it in love and with kindness, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, I put a little outline that you can follow in the bulletin, maybe make some notes underneath if you'd like. But the very first thing that I'd like to talk about is the need for a Savior. I'm always cognizant when I'm preaching, and and this place is starting to fill out. Uh, I'm really happy about that. And don't you worry if we get too full and it's uncomfortable, we'll begin putting chairs out there. And if push comes to shove, we'll have to consider doing two services. And that would be fine if that's what God wants to do. But um, I'm always considerate when I'm preaching that we probably have people here that don't really understand the gospel. And they may be people that have come to church for many years, not just this one, but other churches. And so you'll hear me explain the gospel in most of the sermons that I give, even though that may not be the main topic. This morning, it kind of is the main topic. I'll be talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the first thing I want to talk about is that there is a need for a Savior, because people are lost without a Savior. I was listening to an interview this past week with J.P. Sears. Anybody know that crazy red-haired, long-haired guy that is on YouTube and he makes fun of all the crazy wokeness that's out there and the social justice craziness that's out there and the tyrannical communistic government that we live under nowadays? Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm really not. But if you want to know what I'm talking about, not now, because you all have devices. Google J.P. Sears. He's hilarious. He's really funny. But I listened to an interview of him, and though he'd not claimed to be a Christian, he has deepened in his appreciation of Christian values over the past two years. Uh, one was that brought him to these uh, awakened feelings of Christian values, as he referred to it. He said, is the birth of his son. The miracle of the birth just blew his mind. It's his first child. And it really caused him to reflect on the miracle of God's involvement in bringing forth new human beings into the world. He does a couple of uh, satires on abortion. Not a laughing matter, but he felt very passionate about it, and so he used his gift of humor to address the issue. His second reason really grabbed hold of me because it gave more credence to Christian values, and it really got me. As one being drawn to God, he said this, quote, It's just weird the more tyrannical the world gets, the more I see people, including myself, moving more and more into Christian values. I see that everywhere. 
end quote. He goes on to discussing the onslaught of big tech, okay? He, he, he rails against big government, big tech, big pharma, everything big, right? And he says this, quote, we can look at the authoritarians and sometimes it looks like an avalanche coming our way and that we're powerless against it. It's like, oh my gosh, they control most of the mainstream media. They control the government right now and they control big tech and social media and, and they control the Federal Reserve. <laughs> he he kind of goes off on rants like this. What can we possibly do? But what we forget sometimes, he said, is God's on our side. God is more powerful than big tech, more powerful than all their assets combined. Yeah, I think God helps people find God, it seems. This is a man who doesn't claim to be a Christian. I doubt if he goes to church. This is one that is being drawn. And you can see it in this interview. It's just, it was encouraging, okay? Now, I don't know if that's an accurate explanation, he says, but I get really curious about if that's what's happening now, end quote. You see, he says, when humanity on the whole is connected with God, we win. Like freedom wins, humanity wins. I think we've become much more willing to die in the name of what's right when we're connected to God because we don't fear death. (laughs) Amazing. And he goes on, I'll read it again. I think we've become much more willing to die in the name of what's right when we're connected to God because we don't fear death. The same way as the indoctrinated communists fear death. They're like, oh, death, it's the most horrible endgame. Instead, it's like, oh, death. That means they'll be dancing in the glories of heaven. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, I'm willing to die on my feet instead of living on my knees. This is not a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That conversation encouraged me greatly just because it was so raw. It was so real. And I'm not espousing that this guy is is talking uh, truth that's going to lead somebody else to salvation. But I'll tell you what, God is at work and we cannot lose hope especially during the Christmas season. You see, here was one person trying to articulate the early inklings towards regeneration. He said, I think that's what it means. Is that what it means? He doesn't even know yet. I remember teaching the Chronicles of Redemption one time. That's the Chronicles of Redemption, the evangelistic tool that we use here at Beacon of Hope. And um, we had some unsaved gals that were in that study um, and they were all college graduates, and about six, I think we're probably into uh, the teaching on the law, about the sixth lesson or so, and they were telling me, these girls were telling me that they had a book club that they were a part of, not, not Christian at all, secular, and they said that they were telling the other women in their book club, they said, you, you, can't, just, you can't just worship God the way you want to worship him. Now, these girls were not yet believers at all, but they're already defending the truth of God's word. And the girls in the book club said, well, why can't we worship God the way we want? If we want to worship them under a tree, we can do that. And they said, no, no, you can't, because the Bible doesn't teach that. That's what JP was doing. 
He was defending the truth of God's word without even knowing yet. And I love it. I love it. In this post-modern, post-pandemic society, he was grappling with real issues and he was trending toward the truth. And I prayed for him right then and I'm going to keep praying for him. His last statement echoes what Christian martyrs always believed and they died for. He said, I think we become much more willing to die in the name of what is right when we're connected to God. This is an amazing statement coming from someone who does not yet understand the gospel and salvation. How many Christians can say what he said with this man? So clearly articulated, but only halfway to the truth himself. How many of us are willing to die for the things we say we believe in? We need to ask ourselves these things. Now, the whole interview reminded me of Paul's words on Mars Hill in Acts 17. There we read this. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on earth. And I don't know what happened to the rest of that. I'm going to turn to it. Let's just turn to it. Acts 17. Remember, it's when Paul was talking to the Greeks and he was witnessing to them. Uh, Verse 22, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. They weren't believers, but they were religious. He says, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar to, with this inscription to an unknown God. And therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He was basically telling those philosophers that had put up an altar to an unknown God, that's not going to work for you. You don't have to make this kind of an altar. And he made from one man, he says, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of them. Do you know people in your life, relatives, friends, work people that are groping for God? Maybe they've got some inklings that JP has, that same kind of thing. Fan that in the flame, don't correct them. Don't look down your nose at them that they're saying things that aren't really correct. Rejoice that God's drawing one and feed them the truth of God's word. It's so important. You see, when we talk about the the gospel, we have to realize that God really truly does love people. Even the world that we would say is wicked and evil, right? The world that we would say is filled with people that do not know God and do evil and wicked things. God loves that world. 
He truly does. And it may come as a shock to you that there are some who don't believe that. They're Christians. They're evangelicals. And they would say that, quote, God loves those whom he chose. God does not love everyone. A.W. Pink said that. In all other areas, this man is sterling theologically. In that area, he's an heir. And the reason is, is because God teaches us all through the scripture that God loves the world. Look at John 3.16 with me real quick. It's, it's, you know, do you even need to look at it? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? His only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And you say, well, how can they say God doesn't love the world? He only loves the elect, the chosen of God. Because that's exactly what they say. A.W. Pink would say that that world is talking about the world of the elect. Ah, contraire. You can't, you can't just pick and choose like that. All over the scripture, the world is used and described to be humanity. All of us, together. And God loves us in a general sense, as the world. Not in a particular sense. He loves us who have been chosen by him. We don't even know that until after it happens. <laughs> so it's a family doctrine. You never use election or predestination when you're talking to somebody about Christ. That's craziness. Make people wonder, well, am I chosen? <laughs> How ridiculous. The gospel offer is universal. It's to everyone. To everyone. It's like a Bible teacher once told me, on this side of heaven you see, whosoever will may come. And when you get to heaven, you walk through the gates and you turn around and it says, chosen from before the foundation of the world. That's when you're in heaven, not down here. You see, it's important for us to understand that world, which John formerly used, for though nothing will be found in the world that is worthy of the favor of God, yet he shows himself to be reconciled to the whole world. And when he invites all without exception to faith of Jesus Christ, which is nothing else other than the entrance into life. Let us remember, on the other hand, that while life is promised universally to all who believe Christ, still faith is not common to all men. Even though the call is universal to everyone. I can honestly say to everyone sitting here today, even if you're a, a rank atheist, I can say, God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son Here's the catch, that whosoever believes, <laughs> okay? You've got to add faith to that. You've got to receive the gift of God's eternal salvation. You see, the elect alone are those whose God's eyes have opened, or God has opened their eyes, and they may seek him by faith. This is because the propitiation made by Christ for the world, it was provisional. 
He made propitiation for the whole world, First John tells us. The whole world. Propitiation is a big word. It's an Asian word like justification, sanctification, glorification. Asian words, I call them. They're theological terms. Propitiation means satisfaction. God satisfied. He was satisfied with Jesus Christ's death. And Jesus Christ's death was the satisfaction for the sins of the world. The whole world. Okay? Not just the sins of the elect. The whole world. But... It was only provisional and potential satisfaction because not everybody receives the gift. It becomes actual in reality through faith. And even so, the invitation is open to all, still is universal, but not all receive it. Now, there's a divine tension that I just presented to you. The divine tension is between God's sovereign election of people and human responsibility to respond in faith. And that tension is real. It's very real. You see, our finite minds explode when we try to reconcile the tension. And that's why I think guys like like A.W. Pink, he's gone off on one direction. He's gone off to the side, too much so, on the sovereignty of God. You know, it needs balance on the human responsibility that we have. We have free will to choose within our own nature. That's why regeneration needs to come first. And then we receive Christ. It's so important, and you're probably thinking, what the heck is he talking about on Christmas? This is supposed to be a Christmas message. What are we doing? Well, listen, you've got to understand what's behind Jesus Christ's coming and how it lays out for us as believers in the 21st century. And so I'm trying to explain it to you and help you. In John 6.40, we read this. And this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus speaking. This is my Father's will, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Human responsibility is stressed in that verse. And yet it's a universal offer. It's to everyone, but everyone who believes in him. That's your job as an individual. And that's how simple it is, to be honest with you. God is sovereign, but he works through faith so that a person must believe in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God who alone offers the only way of salvation. Intellectually harmonizing the sovereignty of God and human responsibility is impossible humanly. It makes our head just explode when we try to put it together. And so you have Calvinists and you have Arminians. I've been accused of being a Calminian. Because I won't be as strong as some of my Calvinistic friends or as free as some of my Arminian friends. I believe the Bible shoots right in the middle of both of those doctrines, to be honest with you. And I think that we as men have a hard time understanding why is it it's so hard for us to let God be God and every man a liar? Why is it so hard for us to say, well, here it looks like it's a free offer to anyone. Well, here it looks like God chose people from before the foundation of the world. Clash. It's because of our finiteness. And believe me, if you try to tie all that up in a nice little bow, That's human pride. That's hubris. 
We can't understand it. God is beyond our understanding. And as the scripture seems to teach both sides of that, maybe it does, and we just can't put it together. But God, in his infinite wisdom, can. What we need to take away from all this is that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that lost world that I was talking about. And the call is to faith, and it's a universal call. God loves all who have sinned. God loves the world. But we know that not all will be saved because God's election or predestination does not operate apart from or does not nullify people's responsibility to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's tension. But it's also a balance. So John 3.16 and that world, don't ever listen to somebody that tells you that's the world of the elect. You won't get that from Scripture. And the question remains, does God really love everyone? Really? Yes, he does. Matthew 12, 31, Jesus is teaching, and a Pharisee came up to him and talked to him about things, and Jesus identified the second foremost commandment. He said, what's the greatest commandment of all, Jesus? And Jesus told him what the first commandment was, to love God with all your heart and mind and soul. And then he goes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these, talking about both of them. Well, Jesus clarified that our neighbor is in, uh, what the neighbor is, is in the parable of the sower. Excuse me, the good Samaritan. Okay, the good Samaritan. And he declared to the Samaritans that were listening, they viewed the Jews as pagans, corrupt and despised as a neighbor that is to be loved. It blew their minds. In Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 5, 44 and 46, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So if he's commanding us to love our enemies and unsaved people are the enemies of God, we know that to be true. They're at animosity with God at enmity with God, and yet he commands us as his children to love our enemies, do you think he doesn't love sinful people? Of course he does. That's a character of God. Any Sunday school child would tell you that he loves people. Red and yellow, black and white. They're all precious in his sight, right? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, he says. For he causes his son to rise on evil and good, and sends rain on righteous and unrighteous. Because if you love those who love you, what reward is it to you? So there we have the doctrine of common grace, the fact that God does love even an unregenerate world, a world that is lost in sin. God does love everyone. He loves his creation. He grieves over us. Does God love everyone in the same way? Maybe that's the question we should ask. If so, does that mean that everyone everywhere then will be saved? That can't be, right? Why would we say that? Well, if that's true, why does the Bible talk about hell? Why does it say in Matthew 25, 41, then he will say to those on his left, this is Christ when he returns, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil 
and his angels. There must be something about his love and his commands for us to love even our enemies. So let me ask you, you who are married, do you love your neighbor in the same way you love your wife? No, I would hope not. If you do, it's probably adultery, right? Okay, no, you don't. But does that mean that your love for your neighbor is insincere or that it's not really love? No, it's just a different type of love. It's a different kind of love. It means you are able to love in different ways. And so it is with God. He does love the world, humanity. But he obviously loves his own with a different love, a particular love. We love our enemies because they have been created in the image of God. And that brings intrinsic value to them. They're God's creation. And they've been created in the image of God, and we shouldn't curse them, let alone hate them. But there's a particular love he has for those who are his own. Those who have responded in faith to the Father's gift of the Son, they're loved in a special way. There's no limiting speech in John 3.16. It is the free offer of salvation to whoever will believe, and that is God's good news to offer to a sin-sick world, and it is good news. God really does love all people, everywhere, humanity, though fallen. He loves them. Listen to God's sorrowful cry to his people in Ezekiel 33:11. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that he, the wicked, would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you then die? That's God pleading. Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Don't tell me he doesn't love sinners. I am one. He loved me before I e'er knew him. (laughs) While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. While you are yet sinners, Christ died for you. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul tells us that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Read that again, please. Read that to Arthur Pink, please. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. It's not the badness of men, but the kindness of God that brings people to repentance, Spurgeon once said. God calls to repentance by the gospel, but he leads to repentance by his kindness. The leading here is the drawing, the impelling, the carrying men to repentance, and it is his kindness that does so. You know, I've got to be honest with you, uh, the more theology that you gain as a believer, as you begin to study God's word and you begin to understand his sovereignty, at the same time you begin to understand your own sinfulness, That's why the Puritans always refer to themselves as worms and just absolutely wretched sinners, okay? Think of Jonathan Edwards, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and they seem so stern. Well, they really understood God's sovereignty, his complete purity and holiness, his sinlessness, and they understood, man, me compared to that, I am nothing. I am nothing. Forgive me, God. Thank you for your grace. Forgive me. And so people would say, well, they have a terrible view of 
of man, you know, and, and they just didn't like fun. And those, those Puritans, they, they weren't worth listening to at all. No, they really are worth listening to. But the truth of the matter is, I think sometimes when we get more theology, we become a little bit more stern. And even in, in some methodologies of evangelism uh, that use the Ten Commandments to help people understand their sinfulness, which I am very much for, but that is not one size fits all. If you come upon a Lutheran that is living under the guilt of their own sin because they were taught in the Lutheran church about sin and so forth, and you hit them with the Ten Commandments and condemn them to hell because they are sinners, you're crushing the soul that needs the salve of the good news of God as a Savior. If you hit a Catholic that knows he's sinning and sins every day and just doesn't get it, like Luther who for years beat himself Okay, in a, in a cold cell and slept in the cold, grappling with the fact, how can I obtain the righteousness of God? I am so sinful. And you tell him, did you know that you're a sinner? Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? And the guy's just going down deeper and deeper and deeper. <laughs> Where's the kindness of God there? I used to chide the apologetical methodology class that I taught evangelism in down at the seminary. And I'd say, you guys, you're so stern with your theology. When you go to evangelism, where's your love? The person that you're talking to is under the wrath of God. They are condemned to hell and separation from God forever and ever. You're not going to get them by showing how holy God is and how he will judge their sin. I think they get that. They might not admit it, but I think they get it. Why not bring the kindness of God to them? Now, if you come up against somebody that is quite arrogant, like the rich young ruler, I have kept the law of God. Or the religionist that says, I go to church every Sunday, I give money at church, I, got, I was confirmed, I was baptized, I'm good, I'm good. Never mind, I'll make it, I'm fine. Ha, then bring the Ten Commandments. They need to understand their sin. Is it not correct? Because they don't. They think they're fine on their own. But I'd say to many, many, many people, they're living in quiet desperation. They don't even know why. They just, they know something's wrong, terribly wrong in their lives. And they've been trying to fill the need that they have in their lives with wrong things. Maybe it's sex, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's material things, maybe it's prestige at my job, and it's just, it's not making it. They need to hear about the kindness of God that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross, that whosoever believes in him and releases their life to him, he'll change them, he'll radically change them, make them new people, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. When talking about others, about the gospel, do you forget to tell them about the kindness of God? Do you find yourself raving about his goodness and his mercy and his patience and how good he was to save you? That's a great approach. These characteristics of his character will draw people to him because he loves them. 
Second Peter 3.9 is a wonderfully encouraging verse that displays the heart of God towards sinners. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not desiring for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Greek word, not willing for any to perish, it literally means to not wish, to not purpose, to not will deliberately that people perish, indicating a predisposition of action through a deliberate will. God is not willing that any should perish. Out goes double predestination. Sorry, I had to slip that in there. This is exactly what God did not wish for or will, that any should perish. Yet, yet, he holds a special, distinct love for his own, as seen in 1 John 3, 1. And that's why I chose that for my scripture reading today. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called the children of God? And so we are, present tense. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. But when he comes back, we'll know him, for we'll see him as he is. This Christmas, freely share the love of the Father sending his Son to the world to save sinners. That's what we're endeavoring to do at Beacon of Hope with our Advent services and everything. That's what we're doing with even the children's play today. And kudos to the theology that was embedded in that. It was sound. All the way from Genesis 3.15 and the promise of a deliverer all the way to the birth of Jesus Christ. Messiah, that deliverer. Marvelous. Sing it, pray it, be sure to say it to those who need to hear the gospel because God does love the world and he gave his only begotten son and whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you and so thankful. Father, we confess to you that we are sinful There's not a one of us here that can claim sinlessness. We have all sinned. And if we've sinned, even one sin, that is an affront to your holiness and worthy of judgment. And yet we know that sin is passed on all. All have sinned and fall short of what you expect of us as human beings, your creation. But the gift of God is eternal life to all who believe. So, Lord, let us go forth into this Christmas season with a heart that's filled with thanksgiving and gratefulness for what you've done on our behalf and not because we're anything special, but that we believed your promise. And let us share that with those around us that they might have a joyful and wonderful Merry Christmas. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.